December of 1914 in Monmouth, Illinois. 38-year-old Oscar Hartzell made his way through the bitter cold toward a nearby hotel. The well-respected farmer had been summoned there by a group of business colleagues, and he dreaded to find out what for. Oscar knew that his most loyal associates had discovered some worrying details about his latest business venture a legal fund to secure the misplaced inheritance of Sir Francis Drake, an infamous British sailor and pirate. But his colleagues hadn't heard any news on the project's progress. And when they looked into matters further, they were astonished to find that no one could verify that the missing inheritance of Sir Francis Drake even existed. And so they had called Oscar Hartzell to a meeting to demand answers. Of course, there was no British pirate's inheritance, and there was certainly no plan to procure one. But Hartzell knew that every elaborate lie he spun only put more of his colleagues' trust in his hands and more of their money in his pockets. As soon as he walked into the hotel lobby, the group descended on Hartzell like hyenas. But the farmer was prepared answering each question with a reasonable response. Of course no one could corroborate his stories. It was a highly classified manner involving the British government's top officials. But trust him, they were calculating the value of the inheritance now and it was surpassing all their wildest dreams. By the end of the evening, Hartzell managed to restore their faith. He toasted the room to a round of drinks and proclaimed loudly, to this time next year, when we'll all be millionaires. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This week, we're discussing Oscar Hartzell, a notorious con artist who spent more than 15 years perfecting a scam that put thousands of dollars in his pockets. Today, we'll hear about his unlikely start in crime and learn how he became a top dog in a scam that spread across the Atlantic Ocean from Europe to the American Midwest. Next week, we'll follow Oscar as he continued to milk his rural investors while living the high life in England. We'll find out how the scam finally fell apart despite protests from Hartzell's most loyal donors. Oscar Hartzell was an early 20th century con artist who operated for nearly 15 years in the Midwest and London. But Hartzell wasn't always a con man. Instead, he started as a victim, falling into the notorious Francis Drake inheritance scam after a string of failed business ventures left him broke 
and desperate. But when Hartzell realized that the whole enterprise was fraudulent, he commandeered the racket for himself. For more than a decade, he drained the accounts of bankrupt families in America during the Great Depression. And by the time he was brought to trial, Hartzell had conned people so thoroughly they refused to see him for the swindler he truly was. From an early age, Oscar Hartzell's only aspiration in life was to be rich. Specifically, a successful businessman and farmer like his father, John Henry Hartzell. John was a farmer by trade, a hard worker but also pragmatic. And as a young man, when he was hired to work on the property of a wealthy widow, he positioned himself to leave a wealthier man than when he arrived. John courted one of the widow's daughters, Emma Shaw. On Christmas Day, 1874, they were married. Using the money from his wedding gift, John bought his own 20-acre farm. Not long after, in 1876, Oscar Merrill Hartzell, John and Emma's first child, was born in the town of Monmouth on Illinois' most western border. Three siblings followed in quick succession, Pearl May, Clinton and Canfield. Naturally, as the oldest child, young Hartzell was a born leader among his siblings. In school, he proved to be just as persuasive. His charm and confident air made him especially popular with women. But his good social standing wasn't entirely his own making. His family's growing fortune played a large role. Over the course of Hartzell's childhood, his father continued to expand their farm until it was more than 400 acres. To celebrate their success, John built a luxurious nine-room house on the family's now massive property. But their land came with a great amount of responsibility, and Hartzell was groomed to follow in his father's footsteps. He milked the cows every morning and helped his father in the fields. And at 16, he set aside his formal education to work on his father's farm full-time. And Hartzell was more than happy to do so. It was the beginning of what he believed to be a sparkling future. And soon, he followed in his father's footsteps in more ways than one. He married rich, making the already wealthy Hartzells even wealthier. Daisy Reese was the daughter of another successful farmer and a Civil War veteran. After dating steadily for two years, the couple married on November 20th, 1895, and moved into the Hartzell family house together. But soon, Hartzell wasn't satisfied with just following the trail his father blazed for him. He wanted to go further and forge his own path. He wanted to be a self-made man too. And so, though he was already elevated by his family's wealth, Hartzell resolved to make something more of himself. First, Hartzell set out to buy his own property. After saving enough money, he purchased a piece of land in neighboring Iowa and eventually accumulated over a thousand acres. He became one of the biggest shippers of cattle and horses in the area and developed close business relationships with his fellow farmers. He was successful and well-liked, and took advantage of this new status by attending various parties, dancing and drinking until all hours of the morning. But Hartzell 
felt like a big fish in a small pond. According to his wife Daisy, Hartzell was completely fixated on money during this time. His only drive was to accumulate more wealth. This obsession consumed him, but he was also good at it. Hartzell was confident in both business deals and in social settings, handily able to charm his way into a new lot of cattle or into the good graces of any local farmer. But despite this, he was uncomfortable in more intimate contexts and was reportedly unable to sexually perform with his wife. No matter how confident he was in the wider world, whatever Hartzell did, he couldn't bring that same bravado into the bedroom. And the stark contrast between his personal and public personas suggests that the businessman may have harbored deep-seated insecurity. This insecurity may be exactly what helped fuel Hartzell's brazen ambitions. According to organizational behaviorists Svenja Weber and Jean Piero Petrilieri, being motivated is often considered a desirable trait, an obvious strength. But in some cases, Weber and Petrilieri explain that this drive stems from weakness, such as an overwhelming feeling of self-consciousness or some aspect of self-hatred. In these cases, no amount of success can satisfy an individual's ambition, and it continues to grow until it's no longer sustainable. Soon, this would be the case for Oscar Hartzell. And his ambitions only grew larger in August of 1905, when his father John was hit by a stray bullet on a hunting trip. He died, tragically, two weeks later. John's unexpected death deeply affected 29-year-old Hartzell. His father, his mentor, was gone in an instant, taken by a freak accident. And the sudden nature of his death only made Hartzell even more conscious of his own mortality, of how much he still wanted to accomplish in that time. Luckily for Hartzell and his family, John left them a small fortune. His estate was valued at $10,000, or around $292,000 today. On top of that, John's life insurance paid out another $69,000, almost $2 million today. Even divided between his three siblings and Hartzell's mother, there was plenty to go around. And Hartzell seized the opportunity to go after all of the ambitions he hadn't yet pursued. Within a year, Oscar Hartzell used his share of the money to make a down payment on a 16,000-acre property in the Texas Panhandle, a piece of land worth nearly $3 million today. After the deal went through, he moved Daisy and his business to the Lone Star State while maintaining outposts in Iowa and Illinois. By the end of 1907, business was booming and 31-year-old Hartzell claimed a net worth of $500,000, or $13.7 million today. But most of his money was invested in the form of mortgages and loans. In other words, Hartzell's fortunes weren't nearly as secure as he hoped. He soon learned this the hard way. 
In 1908, the 32-year-old farmer was devastated to learn that there had been an outbreak of the Texas itch, an infectious cattle virus that could only be contained through quarantine. Hartzell's prized cows couldn't be shipped from Texas, and he was forced to sell them at a steep loss. His bad luck only continued from there. According to Hartzell's autobiography, his farm caught fire. He witnessed the cholera outbreak within his herd and lost dozens, if not hundreds, of cattle in a train crash. The way Hartzell described it, it was a series of calamities of almost biblical proportions. Most of these tragedies seem like overly dramatized stories blown out of proportion to cover up ordinary business failures. But regardless of how they actually came to pass, Hartzell soon found himself deep in debt. And in 1908, he was forced to file for bankruptcy. Hartzell was humiliated by the whole experience. His success had been his identity, his everything, and now he'd lost it all. But his bad luck was only beginning. 38-year-old Hartzell moved his family to Des Moines, Iowa, where he set his sights on local politics. He ran for county sheriff in 1914 and invested $1,500 of his own money, or about $38,000 today, into his campaign. He believed it would be an easy win, but once again, things didn't go his way. He lost the campaign and his money. After a string of failures, Hartzell was at the end of his rope. Regardless of what business he tried, he couldn't achieve the level of wealth and success he so desperately wanted. Soon, however, Hartzell would be introduced to a whole new way to get rich quick. Conning. But before he was a scammer, first, Hartzell was a mark. Coming up, Oscar Hartzell falls for the Francis Drake inheritance scam. Now back to the story. In 1914, 38-year-old Oscar Hartzell had tried and failed to run various businesses. From a cattle farm to a political campaign, he poured his family's fortune into venture after venture and ran every single one into the ground. And his dreams of success were as lifeless as his marriage. For the first time in almost four decades, Hartzell had no clue what to do next. Then, he heard about the long-lost inheritance of Sir Francis Drake. Drake was an English sailor and pirate who lived during the Elizabethan era. He plundered Spanish ships for the crown, returning home with huge quantities of silver and gold. Some of this was given to Queen Elizabeth, but the rest of the money stayed with Drake, allowing him to quickly amass a large fortune. Drake never had children, choosing instead to remain at sea for most of his life. He died in 1596 without any heirs, and his riches were split between his brother and his nephews. But just a few years after his death, rumours spread across England that Drake had secret heirs, people who truly deserved the money. Drake's fortune was their birthright. Gossip swirled that his will, the one that had bequeathed his wealth to his brother and nephews, was actually 
a fake. At the time, these were nothing more than whispers on the street. But soon, the rumors gained traction, and conmen saw an opportunity in the controversy. They started contacting people with the last name Drake and convinced them they were long-lost descendants of the famous pirate. The conmen claimed that with the right lawyer, they'd be able to secure the disputed fortune. With this carrot, these scammers asked for money to sponsor a quest to get to the bottom of the mishap, and people were more than eager to pay for their share of Drake's massive wealth. Even as hundreds of years passed, the idea behind the Drake fortune con never quite died. It continued in England for centuries, keeping con artists rich and their marks hemorrhaging cash for a pirate inheritance that would never come. And when certain branches of the Drake family moved to America, the rumors began circulating in the new world. The con became so pervasive that in 1884, James Russell Lowell, the American ambassador for London, was forced to intervene. He wrote a letter to the American people, denying that there ever was a long-lost Drake fortune. The inheritance, he insisted, simply didn't exist. It was nothing more than a grift that had been operating in England for centuries. But that didn't stop Americans from falling for the idea that they were owed hundreds of thousands of dollars in the form of old-world riches. The inheritance con. Or as the FBI categorizes it, the advance fee scam is a particularly tricky grift, partially because over the years it's taken on so many different forms. But the tactics of the con are always similar. First, a mark is promised a huge windfall so long as they make a small monetary donation up front. Then, once the payment is made, the con artist disappears and is never heard from again. A contemporary example of this scam is the Nigerian email con. Someone claiming to be a wealthy Nigerian prince or government official reaches out to their mark with a sob story. The Nigerian claims that their money had been locked away. They need the mark's help to access the riches, just a small loan promising them a percentage of the later profits as gratitude. Even this scam. Which ran rampant as recently as the early 21st century can trace its origins all the way to the Drake Fortune Con. In 1914, when Oscar Hartzell first heard of Sir Francis Drake's lost inheritance, he'd been fed the story by Chicago con artists Sudi Whittaker and Milo Lewis. But when Hartzell met them, they introduced themselves as a traveling saleswoman and an attorney, respectively. But in truth, Whitaker and Lewis had been running their Drake Fortune Con together for five years before they met Oscar Hartzell, and by that time they had their song and dance down to a T. Lewis ran the legal side of the operation overseas in London, while Whitaker was the woman on the ground. She took the scam on the road, persuading marks across the Midwest to part with their money. Whitaker started her pitch by explaining who Sir Francis Drake was and why his inheritance was still unclaimed. In her version of events, the pirate's true heir was actually her cousin George Drake, who was currently living in Missouri. 
This lie gave the con a sense of validity and made Whittaker a more sympathetic and knowledgeable figure in the narrative. But, Whittaker would explain, they needed financial backing to actually access the fortune. And for this, her cousin was graciously offering to split the fortune with anyone who contributed to the project's legal fund. This new spin on the con made Whittaker's version more successful than most. Instead of limiting herself to just people with the last name Drake, she sold shares to anyone who wanted a piece of the action. And as a result, she received much more money. Then, after working a city or town, Whittaker moved on to the next one, promising a huge fortune as she departed. But before Lewis and Whittaker conned Hartzell, they first scammed his mother. In 1914, Emma Hartzell donated $6,500 to the project, around $167,000 today, and introduced her eldest son to the business venture. Hartzell was desperate to make back the money he'd lost in his string of failed endeavors. The idea of Sir Francis Drake's fortune came to him like a mirage appears to a man dying of thirst. Hartzell was blinded by his own ambition. With so many defeats weighing him down, this exciting enterprise seemed like his only path towards the success and recognition he so desperately craved. More importantly, joining someone else's venture mitigated the potential for another disaster. Even if the Drake Fortune project failed, it wouldn't be entirely his responsibility. But still, Hartzell was determined for this opportunity to work. He took on a small sales role, working under Sudi Whittaker in lieu of making the hefty donations he couldn't afford. It was a long way from running his own business, but the appeal of an easy fortune was too strong to resist. And it didn't take long for Whittaker and Lewis to notice that Hartzell had a knack for the job. Hartzell's simultaneous charisma and commonality with the people of Iowa made him an ideal foot soldier. Midwesterners trusted him and regarded him with a sort of credibility that the Chicagoan con artists just couldn't seem to crack. And in the winter of 1914, the 38-year-old proved just how much of an asset he was. That December, he managed to talk an entire group of investors who started questioning the legitimacy of the Drake Fortune Project back from the ledge. And not only did he ease the mob, he actually reaffirmed their loyalty to the cause and collected a few donations in the process. If it wasn't clear to Whitaker and Lewis before, it was now. Oscar Hartzell had become invaluable to their con. And from that point forward, he played a larger role. Whitaker and Lewis used his salt-of-the-earth charms to lure targets into their scam. And the entire time, Hartzell played his role in earnest, unaware that he was being conned himself. By 1915, Hartzell was a full-time employee of what he believed to be an honest operation. He was so convinced that he accepted his payment in the form of shares of Drake's fortune, which were essentially worthless. But Whitaker and Lewis managed to keep him in the dark through sheer deception and clever lies. 
For about two years, Hartzell accompanied Whitaker on her travels all over the Midwest, selling shares and spreading the word about the Drake fortune. And business was good. The pair had their sales pitch perfectly choreographed. First, Whitaker found a banquet space in a hotel and brought in some local reporters with the intention of telling them about the Drake fortune. Then, in the middle of her informal press conference, Hartzell would come barging in, berating Whitaker for talking to reporters about their amazing money-making opportunity. The snippet of controversy and the half-hearted attempt to suppress the press was more than enough to generate interest in the Francis Drake inheritance. And on one particularly successful trip in Des Moines in the summer of 1915, Whitaker and Hartzell brought in $64,000, or $1.6 million today. But trouble loomed on the horizon. On August 9, 1915, Whitaker was brought in on charges of fraud by one of her victims, William Allstrand. Whitaker had sold him two shares of the Francis Drake fortune for $100. But after waiting three weeks for his investment's profitable return, Allstrand figured out he'd been conned and had Whitaker arraigned. When he heard the news, Milo Lewis sailed from London to America to act as Whitaker's legal defense. Whitaker pled not guilty, while Hartzell raised the money for her bail. After her indictment, a judge set Whitaker's trial for early 1916. But the trio was long gone by then, leaving all their investors, as well as Hartzell's wife, Daisy, behind. They went back to London to regroup. Lewis demanded majority control of the operation from Whitaker as compensation for his legal advice. Then, paranoid that Whitaker would attempt to steal the business out from under him, he insisted that the 40-year-old Hartzell keep watch over her and her 12-year-old son. But even in the midst of all this unease, the operation still ran smoothly. Money continued to flood in from their Midwestern investors, providing the trio with a comfortable lifestyle in central London. And in Hartzell's eyes, the city was rife with new opportunities to start over. To do things right this time. Though it's unclear exactly when Oscar Hartzell realized that the Drake Fortune project was a con, he made the discovery around the time the group settled in London. But rather than feel betrayed or cheated, Hartzell had a sudden epiphany. Even if the real Drake fortune didn't exist, he could still get rich on the Drake fortune scam. And all he was really after was wealth. Every day he saw how profitable the con could be in the luxurious lifestyles of Whitaker and Lewis. Both con artists indulged their every whim without having to lift a finger. In other words, they were a success, and Hartzell was desperate to be one too. Soon, Hartzell abandoned whatever good Midwestern principles he had left to fully dedicate himself to the Drake fortune scam. And in a final act to separate himself from his roots, he cut off all communication with his wife Daisy back in Iowa. Hartzell had decided that he wasn't returning to the States. In fact, he was scheming up a plan to take over the con 
for himself. Coming up, Oscar Hartzell cuts Whitaker and Lewis out of their own con and finally finds a business venture in which he can thrive. Now, back to the story. In early 1916, 40-year-old Oscar Hartzell was at a turning point in his career. He had spent the past two years as the unwitting conspirator to two con artists in the infamous Francis Drake inheritance scam. After a close call in Iowa, the group fled to London, where Hartzell finally realized that the business venture he dedicated years of his life to was all just a con. But instead of turning his partners over to Scotland Yard, Hartzell saw an opportunity. The last two years showed him just how profitable this scam could be, and he was determined to seize it himself. So Hartzell stayed with the group and continued to play dumb while he plotted his takeover. But this was easier said than done. Milo Lewis, who currently controlled the majority of the operation, was already paranoid that Sudi Whittaker would try to cut him out of their profits. So he forced Hartzell and Whittaker in an apartment together and tasked Hartzell with surveillance over Whittaker and her 12-year-old son. Frustrated with this turn of events, Whittaker treated Hartzell like an assistant rather than an associate. She sent him on tedious errands and lashed out at him frequently. But Hartzell resolved to oblige her whims, using every opportunity he could to learn more about how the operation worked. Even though they were no longer in America, their con continued running smoothly. Whitaker and Hartzell had already established key investors in the States who fully believed in their tale and continued sending a steady flow of cash. And the trio's presence in London was easy to explain. They told their victims that things were moving along in the Francis Drake case, and they were there to make sure that they continued to do so. Whenever they needed an extra push of revenue, Lewis would simply send supporting documents to prove that things were indeed going in the right direction. And those papers were easy enough to obtain. Using a portion of the con's profits, they hired real genealogy specialists and filed actual lawsuits. Of course, they had no intention of following up on these claims, but the paper trail was convincing enough for even the most stubborn marks. But very little time in London was dedicated to actual work. Most of the group's waking hours were spent in the pursuit of their own enjoyment. The trio used the incoming money lavishly, and the 41-year-old Hartzell took advantage of his new freedom by seeing lots of English women. After all, he was a bachelor now. Once he cut off all communication with his wife Daisy in Iowa, the poor woman gave up on Hartzell and filed for divorce in 1919 on the grounds of desertion. And around this time, Milo Lewis's paranoia that Sudi Whittaker would take over the operation eased. By this time, Lewis felt completely in control. He no longer needed Hartzell to monitor Whittaker night and day. And so, Lewis agreed to let Hartzell rent his own place. That year, he found a room in a boarding house run by E.A. Broadburn, a widow in her 30s. And before long, the pair became lovers as well as business partners. As they grew closer, 
Hartzell told Broadburn all about the Drake fortune scam and what a lucrative business venture it was. And soon, the couple came up with a plan for how they would run it when the opportunity came along. But as it happened, the seeds of Lewis's destruction were already sown. In April of 1919, the Supreme Court of Illinois moved to expel Milo Lewis from the state bar. Their charges were simple but serious. They claimed that Lewis was defrauding people and that he had committed perjury by marrying his second wife before officially divorcing his first. Lewis, Whittaker and Hartzell returned to the States to address the charges and soothe their Midwest investors. News of the charges against Lewis left their marks wary and now they were demanding answers. But Hartzell did what he did best and employed his Midwestern charm to assuage their fears. But most importantly, he was able to establish himself as the face of the organization, while Lewis and Whitaker were embroiled in the scandal. Hartzell used the opportunity to get the fearful mob on his side. After all, unlike Whitaker and Lewis, who were elite city-goer types, Hartzell was salt of the earth and accessible. He was like them, and the investors loved him. Hartzell knew that if he won the hearts of their marks, his path to control the con would be smooth sailing. But first, he had to take care of Lewis and Whitaker. In 1919, Lewis beat the charges against him. But more importantly, the court couldn't prove that the Francis Drake inheritance was a scam. They couldn't prove that the Drake fortune didn't exist. So as long as there was reasonable doubt that Sir Francis Drake did have a lost inheritance, the con was incredibly difficult to prove. But more importantly, this enticed more people to invest. It was free advertising. That same year, Hartzell, Whittaker and Lewis returned to London, high off their legal win, and continued to run the Drake scam. But the American courts weren't done with Milo Lewis quite yet. Three years later, in 1922, they brought the same charges against him a second time. Like before, the Supreme Court couldn't demonstrate that the Drake fortune was a con. But this time, they did successfully prove that Milo Lewis was guilty of perjury. And that year, the Illinois courts officially had him disbarred. Soon, Lewis's disgrace made the local papers, ruining his reputation in the Midwest. He was weak now, and his grip on the operation had started to slip. This was the opportunity Hartzell had been waiting for. While Lewis and Whitaker scrambled to pick up the pieces of their reputation in the face of the scandal, 46-year-old Hartzell wrote to all of their investors behind their backs. Using Lewis's disbarment as proof, he exposed both Whitaker and Lewis as con artists. But instead of admitting that the Drake fortune wasn't real, Hartzell made a genius move. He claimed that Whitaker and Lewis had misled investors by claiming that George Drake, Sudi's supposed cousin, was the heir. But Hartzell explained this was an intentional lie. 
and Whitaker and Lewis were pocketing the money that was meant to be used for the legal fees to unlock the Drake fortune. Whitaker and Lewis were shocked and furious when they found out about the letters. They took Hartzell to court in London for libel and slander, but this ended up being a grave mistake. Soon, they found out that Hartzell's charisma wasn't just useful when it came to talking to clients. He was also able to handily defend himself in court. Whitaker and Lewis, their credibility already damaged, lost the case. And then they lost control of the con as well. Hartzell had been the scam salesman for so long that it was he not Whitaker and Lewis, that had their American investors' loyalty. And his scathing letter had only driven them further to his side. Whitaker and Lewis never saw the takeover coming, in part because they constantly underestimated Hartzell. His genial manner and his farming background made him seem incapable of manipulation. According to psychologist Susan Fisk, this is actually a fairly common psychological phenomenon. In her research, Fisk found a negative correlation between perceived intelligence and warmth in societal outgroups. Simply put, her study concluded that people who behave coldly to others are generally seen as smarter, while those who are warm and approachable are viewed as less competent. This was something Hartzell knew inherently. And even though he spent years plotting against Whitaker and Lewis, they never suspected their friendly, mild-mannered farmer of any malicious intent. They'd been betrayed, blindsided. So thoroughly defeated, they gave up the con and disappeared into the London streets. Hartzell's first order of business, once he had established control, was to find a new legal advisor who could fill the role that Milo Lewis used to play. He found and hired Arthur Sylvester Welch, who would become Hartzell's close friend and accomplice. With Welch's help, Hartzell came up with a new twist on the old scam. Instead of selling shares to prospective investors, Hartzell decided to ask for donations. This way, they could avoid a potentially sticky legal situation. These donors were assured that as soon as the estate was settled, they would get their money back with 6% compound interest and a discretionary bonus. Next, Hartzell needed to find salesmen who could operate in the Midwest, much like the role he used to fill for Whitaker and Lewis. Their help was crucial in ensuring a steady source of income to support his lifestyle in the UK. He had fallen in love with his life in London and wasn't ready to part with it to tour the States again raising money. So Hartzell returned to America to recruit accomplices. The first people he reached out to were his siblings, Pearl May, Canfield and Clinton. He was honest with them about the con and promised them jobs worth $10,000 a year or around $153,000 today in exchange for their help in the Midwest. Clinton walked away immediately, realizing that it was a bad idea. But both Pearl May and Canfield signed on, taken in by their big brother's visions of riches and splendor. Next, Hartzell recruited main investors to help keep the money flowing, 
a Dr. Charles Cochrane, who was an old business partner in Hartzell's failed ventures, and Alma Shepard, a former Lewis backer. With both of these recruits, Hartzell spun a sad tale, explaining how disappointed he was in Sudi Whittaker and Milo Lewis. He still believed in the Drake fortune, but their mismanagement meant that Hartzell would have to start the process all over again. Hartzell was able to convince both Cochrane and Shepard to work as recruiters with this story, with one additional benefit. Hartzell gave them leeway to collect donations on behalf of the cause and told them that all he needed was $2,500 a week to continue carrying on the work. In this clear directive, Hartzell also made the unspoken clear that any money over this amount could be kept by his recruiters. No questions asked. This simple step accomplished two things. It kept his investors loyal while implicating him in the same crimes that he was committing. Now, if they tried going to the authorities, they would be found just as guilty. With these agents on board, the stage was set for the next phase of the Francis Drake inheritance con. And Oscar Hartzell was ready to finally begin living the successful life he'd always dreamed of. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Oscar Hartzell's story. We'll see how he continued to spin interest in the Francis Drake scam through the 1920s and even throughout the Great Depression. And finally, we'll discuss what led to Hartzell's downfall and the circumstances surrounding his trial. For more information on Oscar Hartzell, among the many sources we used, we found Drake's Fortune, the fabulous true story of the world's greatest confidence artist by Richard Rayner, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Con Artist was written by Liz Dorovitsen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Music